Lockdown Science. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM. This is the show that happens when two biologists isolate together and need to find something to do other than meticulously documenting the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie. And I'm Andrew. And the cat's called Suki. She's 16, loves a cuddle, judges all humans and is pretty sure she's a better scientist than both of us. She probably is, we don't know. We don't, I mean, to be fair, we assume there's nothing going on in there, but she just doesn't speak our language. Yeah, and, you know, language is a big barrier in science. Maybe maybe she's published thousands of papers in her 16-year career, but they're all yeah. in cat, so we we can't read them. The cats do look at her with respect, the, the other cats on the street. Not you know. not the cat, not the one in the garden this morning. No, it did not. <laughs> <laughs> Suki went outside to uh, do her business and then screamed at the door because another cat was looking at her dodgily from the top of the shed. I know, I'm trying to teach her to like hold her own. It's like, nobody should make you feel lesser. But unfortunately, I think she might be lesser, and that's the issue here. She's just not very good at standing defend, up for Defend your territory if you want to be a formidable lion, Suki. Exactly. Gosh, so many lessons from evolutionary biology already. I know. We haven't even gotten to the science yet. Science of the Week. Well, it's time for our Science of the Week quiz, where I judge Andrew on the non-COVID science that's been in the news this week and see whether last week's score of literally zero, embarrassed him into revising or whether he has no shame. Judge is the right word as well. You, yeah. you really did judge me hard last oh, week. I judge so. I'm, I'm beyond pretending I'm not judging you. <laughs> I am judging you. So how are you feeling about this week? Um, I mean, it didn't shame me into, re- into revising, if that's what you're asking. Good. So, um, Good. This I don't know. We'll this is see. where that sort of nudge technique comes in, doesn't it? I should shaming is the wrong way to get someone to do something. You should gently nudge them towards maybe not being terrible at a quiz each week. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, let's see. I'm feeling optimistic. All right. Number one, what has been built on Exmoor for the first time in 400 years? Um, think sciencey, as in you know. It's... Well, really, really, in this podcast, <laughs> think sciencey. <laughs> I was. I, that's funny because you know I was going to go with I don't know an art sculpture because yeah. that's definitely our remit. <laughs> just, just so you know, we're we're recording this quite late at night, and this is when Andrew's sassy side comes out. <laughs> so, um, no, no, do tell. What do you think it's going to be? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Is it going to be? Is it going to be some sort of astrological station? No, it's not. Think more natural. Uh, built. Yes, not only humans build things. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. a beaver dam? Yes, I'm going to give you that because I'm feeling generous. It is, it's a beaver dam. So the beavers were released in Somerset in January and they have now created a mighty fine looking little dam on Exmoor. Mm. So they were moved to Exmoor from locations on the River Tay in Scotland as part of the National Trust's Riverlands project. And they're clearly doing well, beavering away, doing what? beavers do best you know chewing up wood making dams yeah and this project's been a success hasn't it because the beavers that were on the river otter which was part of a trial have been given leave to remain or whatever it's called (laughs) (laughs) unsurprisingly to to most ecologists we we kind of went well yeah bringing back beavers is probably going to do good things ecologically you'll increase fish stocks you'll increase invertebrate populations good for flooding and yeah good for good for flood defense and the government went well we've kind of got to test this which is fair enough but yeah we like evidence yeah but they they seemed very skeptical about whether it was going to be a a good idea there was all this sort of oh landowners and fishers are not going to like and lo and behold, even you know people like fishermen who kind of went, well, what if it ruins the fish stocks? Have gone, oh no, actually, 
it's improved them. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah, we all love, be- everyone loves a good beaver. All right. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, so they are native to the UK, but they went extinct in the 16th century because they're heavily hunted for their fur, meat, and what other slightly surprising substance? This isn't going to count your total, but I want to see if you know this. Uh, what else do people hunt beavers for? I don't know, a, 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 an oil secretion or something? Or? Yeah, I'll give you that. Okay. Castorium, a yellowish, oh. whitish, milky substance that beavers secrete from a sack near their tail and use along with urine to mark their territories. Mm. But do you know why anyone would want this beaver juice? Uh <laughs> Don't know, perfume? <laughs> oh, no, yes. You're Musk- right. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. So, Odor beaver. Odor beaver, <laughs> yes. It was used as a scent in perfume, as a medicine for some things like uh, headaches and fever, and as a food additive. Mm. Yeah, so would you like to guess what beaver butt juice tastes like? <sighs> um, maybe, maybe kind of piney, sort of... Yeah, you know, they're eating wood. Yeah. Do they, does it come out sort of vague hint of sawdust in your dinner? No, but nearly there. Vanilla is one of the things. So that's kind of mm. barky, you know. Okay, yeah. yeah. Notes of raspberry and vanilla. Tasty. I'll look out for it next Bear time. Bear it in I'm mind. In the shops. Yeah. Mm, no. Anyway, moving on to number two. Which portrait put up this week at the Royal Society will, in inverted commas, upset a few fellows? Ooh. Well, okay. Is it going to be. A, a portrait of a notable female scientist that's going to sort of upset a few crusty old men. Got it in one, yes. Uh, I mean, to be fair, I, I think that this is partly a joke about upsetting a few fellows, but n- you never know. Anyway, this was Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, whose oil portrait, painted by Stephen Shankland, has just joined the otherwise very male-dominated array of portraits displayed in the Royal Society. Mm. Dame Jocelyn Balbonnell is a legend of physics because when she was just 24 and doing her PhD at Cambridge, she discovered a new type of star called a radio pulsar. Wow. Yeah, making all the rest of us PhD students yeah. absolutely terrible. <laughs> wow, way to, way to make us inadequate. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jocelyn. But, and this is a big but... Her male supervisor, not her, won the Nobel Prize for the discovery in 1974, even though she was completely integral to the discovery. Yes. So that makes me so angry. I mean, like, can you imagine? What is the likelihood that a PhD student even discovers something so incredible? And then it wins a Nobel Prize. And that, despite that fact, they don't get the proper recognition. No. That's awful. It's so bad. Has it been, like, retrospectively... Well, changed. I think not the Nobel Prize, but she she's even more of a legend because she was, in 2018, awarded a special breakthrough prize in fundamental physics, which was in recognition of the same work. Mm-hmm. Right, And it was worth £2.3 million. She could have kept it. But she gave the money away to fund women, underrepresented minority and refugee students to become physicists. So, what an absolute queen. Absolute legend. Yeah. And the reason why she joked that her portrait might upset a few fellows of the Royal Society was that it had been placed in a very prominent position in the building, taking the place of naturalist Joseph Banks. But, Mm. bearing in mind that Joseph Banks was alive in the 18th century and Belle Burnell is a living legend, I'm 100% here for it. Yeah. Number three. On the 17th of November, the Oduropa project announced that they had been awarded a 2.8 million euro grant. What is the main aim of the project? 
Europa. Yeah. Okay. Is it... Uh, how much was the grant? Uh, th- 2.8 million euros. So the only thing I can think of with... I, I, I'm going to go Song of Europe N- of or of Europa. Oh, I see where you're getting that, but no. If they're being clever with the name. They are being clever with the name. Okay, so, so I was going to say, is it something to do with the moon Europa? No. Oh, so many good puns from this. Oderopa. Oderopa. Oh, not Oderopa. Well, it is spelled Oderopa. I thought you might get it from Oderopa. Okay. No. Okay. What, smelly rope? Yeah, no, no, but smell. So I... Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We've been awarded £2.3 million to study smelly rope. (laughs) Smelly smelly Europe? It's literally smelly Europe. Oh, it it is? No, I'm not joking. Oh, okay. So it's to identify and recreate the smells of Europe between the 16th and 20th centuries. I heard this and I thought, (laughs) like, surely that's the smell of sewage and BO. No. But apparently it's a more complicated. A little bit of Black Death mixed in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just some, some tasty play. No, apparently it's more complicated. So firstly, there is actually science in this. Okay. So firstly, they're going to develop artificial intelligence to scan texts in seven languages and paintings as well for references to scents. And they'll use this to create an encyclopedia of smells along with insights into the situations in which they would have occurred. And then they'll look at the meanings of smells and how these changed over time. And then, and here's, okay, here's where it gets really sciencey. Working with chemists, they're going to recreate and preserve some smells from the past. Hmm. Yeah. Weird. So if you could recreate any smell from the 16th to 20th century Europe, what would it be? I mean, apparently, I I don't know. I don't know where to start because I haven't spent a few million on sort of text mining and and working out what smells might have existed. I don't know. So apparently, ancient one... perfume. Yeah. I don't oh. Think so. Yeah. Beaver odor. Beaver. <laughs> Beaver odor. <laughs> Beaver butt juice. <laughs> Apparently, um, this is actually quite like it's quite complicated, right? So things like um, cigarette smoke, for example, yeah. it's got a very like long history of a smell, and it was thought of in like different ways at different times. Sometimes it was thought of as quite disgusting. Sometimes it was, you know, quite a fancy smell. So mm, there's more okay. to it than you'd think. Okay, but I will um, maybe I'll send them an email and suggest the whole butt juice thing. Beaver butt juice. Beaver butt that's, juice. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, what cool. we need. Number four. On the 24th of November, China launched a spacecraft. What is the purpose of the mission? To find out about space? I mean, broadly, yes. And I get the point. <laughs> Can we have a little bit more specific? Um, to investigate something about terraforming Mars. No, think closer to the Earth. Terraforming the moon? terraforming but it's to collect moon rocks yeah so only two other countries have previously retrieved samples from the moon's surface that's the usa and the former soviet union and the most recent of those was more than 40 years ago Mm. yeah so it's about time we got some more moon rocks i think yeah china's restarting the space race exactly so the mission has been a success so far it landed on the moon's surface after a 112-hour journey, which is quite long. I mean, I'm, I don't really like a seven-hour flight, to be honest. But yeah, 112 hours. 
but it landed. It's mm-hmm. all good. And it's due to be back on Earth with its samples in the middle of December. Mm. And it's expecting to bring back about two kilograms of rock and dust to help scientists to learn more about the moon. This is unmanned, presumably. Yep, it's, it's unmanned. So the little spacecraft is out there all on its own. Mm. 112 hours and now it's doing its hard Gathering work. its rocks. Gathering its rock. Yeah, oh. I'm imagining a robot like a little raccoon <laughs> just kind of you know, <laughs> gather, gathering up the rocks and scampering off with it back to its, back to its shuttle. <laughs> that is also how I imagine it. I don't, I don't, <laughs> probably not how probably, it looks. Probably not, but that's horrible. <laughs> so yeah, it can tell us more about um, the, I say us, like I'm the one looking at the rocks and would know what to do with them. It's going to tell scientists. Mm, it's a rock. That is indeed a rock. Uh, lick it. I lick. think that's what geologists do. I think so. Yes. Yeah. But it can it can tell scientists about the moon's formation and and the volcanic history. And all of this just brings me back to the incredible fact that people have walked on the moon. Like I know that happened in '69. I probably should have got over it by now. But I wasn't alive then, so I feel like I haven't had long enough to you, deal with it. You relived it through a couple of films. Yeah. <laughs> but could you? Imagine being alive in 1969 and actually seeing the moon landing on the TV. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how TV would ever live up to that. No. If you if you watch that live, like everything else is going to be a disappointment. How are there people who were alive in 69 saw the moon landing and then watch X Factor? Like, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't understand. It's just I would not have been able to contain myself. I would have been like losing my chill yeah. seeing someone walk on the moon. So cool. It is really cool. But I guess if we in our lifetime see someone walk on Mars, that will be <sighs> a huge deal. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that amazing. could be our moon landing. Yeah, well, I don't think it's going to be that. Uh, I think yeah, we'll see a, it. Yeah, I, I think, I think, I think there's a chance. I think there's a chance. Number five. And this one's quite close to home. What important scientific documents went missing 10 years ago, but staff at the University Library in Cambridge have only just decided were actually stolen? Oh, I actually know this, as opposed to just making good guesses. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's Darwin's notebooks. It is. It's two of Darwin's original notebooks. Now, they were taken out of storage at the University Library at Cambridge in late 2000 to be photographed by the library's photography unit. And in early 2001, library staff noticed that the books were not stored where they should have been. So Mm. they assumed that they'd just been misshelved. So over the years, searches have taken place, but the university library is now run by a a completely different team of staff. And they recently reviewed the situation and were like, "Mm, yeah, guys, I think they've been stolen. That's probably not how the conversation went. But. <laughs> Did they? I mean, presumably, you know, back in back in two thousand one, they contacted the people who'd taken it out. You think so? The they're... photographer is top suspect. I don't. I think the way they're talking about it, I wonder whether it was considered that it's not that the photographer stole them; it's that some in the transfer, they've maybe not been left securely. Okay. At some point, yeah. So I think that's that's the issue because if they just never came back from the photographer, that's pretty obvious, right? But if it's a case of like apparently there were some building works going on at the time, so, so a builder's gone. I know what I can make a few minutes. Stop with on accusing the people. <laughs> Stop. We don't know who did it, otherwise we would know where they were. I'm, I'm just intrigued. I'm intrigued by the mindset mm. because, like, obviously they're phenomenally cool documents. That, but you'd think that. I don't know. Most people who would either not see the value of them or would appreciate them and sort of think, well, a library is the right place for them. But there are obviously some people who appreciate them but think my 
study is the best place for them. Well, yeah. So, I mean, art theft yeah, exists, right? So yeah. this is kind of, this is on the same sort of scale in terms of if you could put monetary value on it. Yeah. It's on a similar scale to some of the most high profile art thefts. But they have said that the books are so rare, there's no way that they can be sold on the open market. Well, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. That, that's that's going to be like um, black market trading isn't it you can't you're not going to suddenly put oh yeah i came across two of darwin's notebooks in the attic so i put them on ebay yeah no exactly (laughs) exactly so they're saying it's likely they've gone to ground but the ul has now got the police and interpol investigating so there is a chance that maybe one day they'll be tracked down these things do happen yeah now when i was reading about (laughs) about this i came across a fun fact about the university library in cambridge which is the total length of all its shelves so for anyone who hasn't seen this building the ul is just I mean, it's huge, absolutely huge. It kind of looks like a giant old hospital-type building because it's got, like, a really high brick tower that basically looks like an incinerator chimney. And there's even a widely held rumour in Cambridge that it goes as deep into the ground as it goes up. I was going to say, yeah, I've heard that rumour. I don't know I tried, I tried looking it up. It's not on the internet. Yeah, but it is a copyright library. It is. So yeah. it's got a copy of every book ever published in the UK. Yeah, so it has around 10 million books, maps and manuscripts. Yeah. So it is, it's enormous, yeah. right? So can you guess roughly how many kilometres of shelving does the UL have? Um, thousands? Tens of thousands? Tens of thousands. Of kilometres? Yeah. Oh, that's quite... (laughs) That's quite optimistic. No, I thought it was quite impressive. It has over 210 kilometres. Oh. You seem really let down by this fact. I just thought a sort of thing, you know, it's one of those weird things of like when something's linear... You can pack far more of it in than you think into a given area. And library shelves are quite densely packed and the UL's got a lot of floors. True. Yeah, maybe I overestimated. I'm sorry to let you down. It's <laughs> like a couple of orders of magnitude less than what you thought it was. Yeah. But 210 kilometres, that's really impressive. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's a big that, building. That That is cool. I'm also going to lay on the other fact, which despite having been in Cambridge for over 10 years, I only found out like last year when you started getting involved with CAMFM, which is the fact that we broadcast from the top of the UL. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Top of the world, or at least the top of Cambridge. Yeah. I mean, that is, Cambridge is flat. (laughs) It's that that or Castle Hill. Exactly, that really is the top of the world to us. Okay, so if we just toss up your scores, am I going to be nice? Am I going to give you Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell when you said an important female scientist? Yes. You okay. Are. Yeah. I'm going to give you a beaver dam because it took a little bit, of, you know, getting at you, but you did get that. Yeah. I'm not giving you smelly rope for Odoropa. I'm not giving Seems you fair. to find out about space. Oh, what? That was. <laughs> give you, I'm giving that was, you. That was insightful. <laughs> I'm going to give you the manuscript. So that is a grand total of three out of five. Yeah. Building on last week's spectacular zero out of five, I think we can all be proud of you. Yeah, I mean, it's better than I did in my first year collection, so... (laughs) (laughs) Journal Club. Well, it's time to share our favourite science papers we found this week. What have you got for us? My study this week is actually a listener submission. I feel like I should have a jingle for listener submission, just to make it even cheesier than it is. So thank you to Emma for this really weird suggestion, which is exactly the kind of thing we love here on Lockdown Science. Now, platypuses, platypi, platypodes, whatever you want to call the plural of platypus, we can firstly agree they're weird, right? Yeah, super weird. 
They're mammals, but they lay eggs. They produce super antimicrobial milk that oozes straight out of their skin rather than having nipples. They've got a bill and webbed feet like a duck, but a tail like a beaver. And to top it all off, the males have venomous spines on their hind legs. So they're badass, basically. They're not just any mammals. They're a specific type of mammal called a monotreme. What can you tell me about monotremes? They're the only mammals that lay eggs. Mm -hmm. And so they're sort of the outgroup to all other mammals because they're sort of mammals without having evolved all of the features of mammals yeah they don't they don't have proper mammary glands right they're, yeah. they're basically sweating milk and laying eggs so the fun thing about i mentioned the antimicrobial milk basically it's so antimicrobial because yeah they just sort of sweat it out of their skin and the good thing about nipples is that <laughs> that's a weird way to start <laughs> the good thing about nipples no so the, one of the good things about nipples is the fact that because it's all very sort of concentrated a baby can kind of put its mouth around it and it's quite a, it's a relatively sterile environment yeah. whereas if you just sweat milk it's getting all mixed up in your like actual sweat all the like mud you rolled around in whatever yeah, your, fur. your fur so it's pretty gross so the way of getting around that is that they have quite antimicrobial milk which sort mm. of compensates for how disgusting and you know microby it is yeah which is a really fun adaptation and as someone who works partly on antimicrobial exudates very exciting for me <laughs> kind of, kind of your uh, your niche. Kind of my niche. So we knew all about this general weirdness around platypuses, but fresh new ridiculousness has emerged about them recently. So this week I've been reading this study sent to me by Emma, which is Annika Tal, titled "Biofluorescence in the Platypus." I think I've given it away by the title, haven't I? Yeah, that's right. Platypuses are biofluorescent. That's awesome. I know. Why? <laughs> why? Why? I'm going to get on to why, actually. But okay. First of all, biofluorescence is where organisms absorb short wavelengths of light and give off longer wavelengths. As a teenager, did you go to those like UV parties? Yeah. They were like so cool in the noughties. But yeah, if you've ever gone to one of those UV parties, you'll know what this looks like. We often can't see this biofluorescent effect without any special equipment, like a black light. So going back to the UV party analogy, before you go to one of those, you tend to put on these like streaks of fluorescent paint. They might have a bit of colour in normal lighting. But then you go to the party where they have a room lit with mainly black lights, and then you just like absolutely glow. Now, that's because what we call black lights are actually lamps emitting light in the UV wavelength of the light spectrum. That is, light with a wavelength shorter than visible light. And the special paint you're wearing contains phosphors which absorb the UV light and convert it into light of a longer wavelength. That is, visible light. Some people are probably getting sweaty flashbacks from GCSE, GCSE <laughs> physics now. So let's just head back to the platypus. I thought you were going to say sweaty, sweaty flashbacks from the UV party. Oh, was that too? Well, anyway, <laughs> just terrible life choices. Just, uh, even my GCSE physics was a better idea. Anyway, essentially, it's been found that platypuses, which appear brown under normal wavelength visible light, you know, like a standard torch or the sun, actually glow blue-green under a black light. Mm. So weird. Yeah. So presumably that means that they can see in ultraviolet? Yeah, so we're going to get to this okay, as okay. well. But first of all, I want to bring up the really awesome reason why they found this out. So the authors of the study actually found this because they had earlier discovered that flying squirrels glow under UV light. And they were checking their museum flying squirrels to see whether they still do the same thing when they've been long dead. Okay. 
Spoiler alert, they do. Yeah. But then they were like, hey, let's just test the platypuses in the museum too. And they also glowed. If this was you, would you just be like running around the museum with a black light, just being like, do you glow? African elephant? No. Do you glow hedgehog? No. Kwati? No. Platypus? Ooh, yes. I'm, so I'm really intrigued by, right, so they're actually working on flying squirrels. Yeah. That's quite a leap, if you'll excuse the flying squirrel based part, from, from platypi. So Platy- platypuses, I believe. Right. Okay. But you know, can I just can I just make, can I just make a point here? Uh, platypus is actually for, like a sort of Latinized Greek. So if we did want to like be smart about it, yeah. The pus on platypus comes from the Greek, the ancient Greek word pus. Yeah. So it would be platypodes, not platypi. Okay. All right then, the platypodes. Okay. Cool. cool. Um, just so we got that. Just straight. so we got that straight. Spot the spot the classics nerd here. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. So it's quite a leap uh, between flying squirrels and platypus. So did they really go? Well, we know that flying squirrels glow. So like platypuses are weird. So maybe they're the Why most not? likely to grow to glow. Or did they actually do what you just suggested and run around the museum at night, just going, "Let's see what glows." <laughs> the idea so when they actually took photos of it they'd put it onto like a proper a proper desk with like measuring equipment and all that yeah but then black lights do come just in you know you can get a handheld black light so i do love the idea that they were just like having a uv party yeah in a museum i i, re- I really like the idea that they're sort of you know they've gone over to the drawers that have got the got the flying squirrels in and they then they turn the lights out and they put the black light on and they're like oh yeah okay they're still glowing and then one of them kind of looks up and out the corner of their eye they can see a glow over on the other side of the museum and they're like, what what's that what oh my god it's the platypus <laughs> yeah i just love this so much and also i just think that like Scientists very get, get a very serious rep. I don't know any of the scientists on this paper, but I'd like to think that they had a sense of fun when it came to this. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what I would do anyway. I feel like this is a, this this should be a film night night at the museum UV style night at the museum nerd version. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! It turns out that Tutankhamun's sarcophagus glows as well. <laughs> Who knew the ancient Egyptians had UV? <laughs> Okay, let's get back to the question. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. (laughs) This is cool enough on its own, right? The platypuses are having their own little UV party. Yeah. But can you think of any reasons why they would glow under UV light? The evolutionary biologist is like, but why is this adaptive? Because, well, I don't know. So they're, they're using it for some kind of communication that they can, they can see each other and predators can't see them. Oh, okay. So you've got that almost half right in one theory, right? So the, there are sort of two two main possibilities. One is that it could be a way of communicating and signalling to other platypuses, but this seems unlikely because platypuses swim through murky water with their eyes, ears, and nose closed. So eyesight isn't really very important most mm. of the time to platypuses. Interestingly, they mainly sense the world through mechanoreception which for platypuses means like changes of pressure and the motion of other things around them. Yeah. And, really cool, 
electroreception. Oh, yeah. Because that means that they can essentially sense electrical signals given off by other living objects like prey. It's not mental. Yeah, that's, just my, that's cool. Let's add that to the mental platypus tally I've got going on here. Yeah, because and do any other mammals have electroreception like that? No, I'm not sure. You, know, you hear about it in fish. It's quite common right? in fish, yeah, yeah. And, and, and sharks and things. But uh, mammals? I don't know. That's pretty weird. That's one to look up. I'm mm, not, I, I'm I not entirely know. sure. As I would say to my students, I'm going to check that and email you back. Okay. We'll expect <laughs> an update on uh, the next episode. Why, thank you. Anyway, so it doesn't seem likely that biofluorescence would provide much of a benefit for sensing other platypuses. So another more likely reason, according to the paper, is that they use it to avoid predators. So lots of animals, as you've already said, unlike us, can see UV rays. So by absorbing the UV rays hitting them and then emitting them at a longer wavelength, platypuses could blend into the background more and avoid predation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's actually a camouflage rather yes. than a signal. Exactly, it could well be a, a camouflage. Interesting. I mean, alternatively, maybe it's not adaptive and it's just an ancestral quirk that they've never lost. Who knows? Yeah. But anyway, the authors say that field-based studies are needed which document biofluorescence in living platypuses and determine what their ecological function is along with that. Because at the moment, it's just been done in museum specimens. Yeah. There has also been a, um, another paper that was out fairly recently which noted that recently dead platypuses, so there was one that was found as roadkill, that that also biofluoresce. So it's yeah. not just like a thing that happens in museums. Right. Yeah, it's not just because someone went around the museum beforehand and painted all the platypuses. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. Paint. No, so it happened to one in nature as well. But unless we can see them exhibiting it while they're going about their daily little platypus lives, we can't entirely understand what the ecological function of it is. Yeah. So basically, I guess what my takeaway is, is that nature is bizarre and platypuses are just one of the most fantastic examples of this. Yep. I don't know why people need to believe in the paranormal when we have such crazy, unrealistic species here on Earth. Like, it's not even just platypuses that display biofluorescence. It's like it's been flying found... squirrels. Uh, flying squirrels, yes, and it's also been found in like everything from fungi to corals to arachnids to amphibians. Yeah. Basically, the natural world is having one massive UV party that we're not invited to. Mm. Feel kind of left out. I do feel kind of left out. Although, if it's anything like the ones that I went to in sixth form. I think I'm fine, Maybe actually. Best avoided. Best avoided. <laughs> anyway, on that lovely note of my misspent youth, what have you got this week? So, if you remember last week, we discussed how tickling a weeing wombat might aid conservation. I, I will never be able to forget that, yes. Yeah. For those of you who haven't heard last week's podcast, that's a teaser to get you scurrying back to find it on, on Apple. Scurrying like a wombat. Scurrying like a wombat. But before you go and look it up, wait till the end of this episode... Because this week, we're going to ask, what can giving an alligator helium tell us about evolution? I'm so glad scientists do these studies. <laughs> <laughs> Please do tell. OK, so fairly obviously, vocalisations are a really important means of communication in animals. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So lots of animals use sounds to communicate information, whether that's about the location of food, a warning of danger, or to tell one another to, you know, naff off. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, I know that one. Well. Yeah, and uh, Suki does it a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, lots of sounds are used for sexual communication, singing to attract potential mates, calling to deter rivals. But the structure of these sounds are also known to be important because they communicate information about the animal. Mm. So songs that are intricate, for example, are harder to learn. And this is thought to indicate the quality of the caller's genes. That's why they're yeah. impressive. 
But another important physical trait which animals might want to convey information about is their size, because size is often correlated with strength and therefore dominance when it comes to either competing for food or for mates. And so larger animals are often biologically fitter. Mm. So can a vocalisation tell you about an animal's size? The answer is yes. Well, sometimes. So different components of a sound can be produced in different ways. Some of those components are determined by the structure of the body part that produces them, such as the frequency of pulses um, from from something vibrating um, or the effort which an animal puts into it, such Mm -hmm. as the volume. So if you just use, say, volume as an indicator, then an individual can just shout louder. Yeah. And that sort of, you know, can mask the fact that actually they're, they're a bit smaller. But other components of sound are determined by vibrations of the air in a chamber such as the vocal tract. And this is harder, uh, or or actually probably impossible, for an animal to kind of fake. Mm. So a larger chamber has a lower resonant frequency, and that means that bigger animals can produce deeper sounds which are simply beyond the reach of smaller individuals. Okay. Yeah, so if I were an alligator, I could only produce rumbles at a sort of medium frequency you'll be able to get like big earthy rumbles deep things yeah Yeah. and actually at this point so so alligators we're going to kind of come on to them more but they do do some really cool rumbling and they do these like sub frequency rumblings where they they get the water to vibrate on the back on their backs which is really really cool yeah like a little natural jacuzzi yeah exactly yeah (laughs) but it's actually a really important means of communication but anyway so these sounds which are are impossible for smaller individuals to replicate are what are known as honest signals because only a truly large animal can produce it and in mammals and birds these honest vocal signals are known to be used but they're not previously in 2015 Mm. been found in other groups such as reptiles okay so this is a 2015 this is a 2015 paper it's yeah it's it's not an it's It's just something fun you found this week yeah yeah okay so we've we've got it in birds so was it birds mammals birds mammals but but not not reptiles not not reptiles okay Yeah. yeah so how do you test how different components of sounds are being produced and and understand whether they might be honest signals I don't know anything. I'm going to regret asking. Yeah, well, this is where it gets fun. <laughs> okay. Because it's not just the size of a chamber which determines its, es- its resonant frequency, but also the composition of the gas that it's filled with. Mm-hmm. So in nature, this will just, of course, be normal air. 79% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. It's a yep. broad approximation. And that gas will always have the same frequency because the sound travels through it at the same speed Mm. but different gases have different weights and therefore when a chamber is filled with a lighter gas sound will travel faster within it and increase the resonant frequency so what is a good scientist faced with the challenge of wanting to try to alter the resonant frequency of a calling reptile to do i think i know what they're gonna do but i really want you to say it (laughs) put an alligator in a chamber full of helium and see if its voice goes all squeaky Why? <laughs> no. so I, I love this because it's such a robust paper. Like it's such it's such a clever experiment to answer a question, but the methods are ridiculous. So, do the okay? So, an alligator in a helium chamber does it actually go squeaky? I mean, yes, effectively. Yes, yeah, well, we're yeah, we're okay. gonna yeah yeah okay. we'll, we'll, we'll come get there. We'll yeah. So, as I said. Crocodilians, which includes alligators, produce low-frequency bellows to attract mates, and size is important in mating success. So apparently female crocodilians will only mate with males that are larger than themselves. 
Oh, okay. Mm. So it's, it's quite an important signal. So in trying to look for this, these sort of honest signals in reptiles, crocodilians are good candidates yeah. for having this kind of vocalisation. So Stephen Reber and colleagues from the universities of Vienna and Kyoto, working in a zoo in Florida, made an airtight container which they could experimentally fill with water, normal air, oxygen and helium. And this is quite a lot. There are some really detailed diagrams of how they made this. So that essentially the, the chamber had to be a vacuum. It's got to be big enough to contain an alligator. Yeah. And it's also going to have all of these vents going in for, for the different things and, and a drain at the bottom so they can let water out as well as in. This is not your DIY fieldwork project. Well, I don't know. I mean, it might have been DIY, but it was some elaborate and very careful DIY to make a make a fully functioning piece of scientific equipment. DIY by people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Having made this chamber, they put an alligator inside and induced it to bellow by playing recordings. So you can they play recordings. I think it was of the alligator's own bellows and mm. just kind of tricked it into, into bellowing back at them. So first they did this with normal air in the chamber and they recorded the sound. And then they filled it with water briefly and replaced the air with 88% helium. 12% oxygen mix, otherwise known as heliox, and waited for the alligator's lungs to fill with a new gas and then got it to bellow again. Oh, no. So, so the great thing about heliox is that it's perfectly safe. Yeah. So it's used in medical treatments because it's, it's easier to breathe because it's lighter. And oh. it's, it's got enough oxygen in for an animal to survive on, at least for a short period of time. So this alligator is happy but squeaky. Yeah, perfectly happy. It is perfectly healthy and safe and humane. It's just feeling a bit squeaky. So sure enough, they compared the sound spectra of these two different bellows from normal air and from heliox. And they found that there were components of the sound which did not change between the air and the heliox, i.e. showing that they were determined by the structure that was producing them. Okay, yeah. And then they also found components which were at a much higher frequency in the heliox than they were in the air i.e. resonant sounds. Mm -hmm. So like in a, I guess in a person's voice, it still sounds like their voice when they're on helium. There are still like tones which are specific to them. Yeah. But it's squeaky. So it's probably a similar kind of thing. So someone someone might speak with the same rhythm. For example, yeah, like your your something about the way that you produce your sounds, the way that you move your mouth around, is going to determine sort of the the rhythm and and the accent, maybe. Yeah, but there are fundamental parts of it that also change. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so crocodilians do appear to be using honest signals to communicate. Mm, yeah, interesting. Pretty clever experiment. <laughs> but I promised you something about evolution. Yes. Bring it. So, as I said, these types of sounds have only previously been proven in birds and mammals. So their existence in reptiles is pretty interesting. Yeah. And birds and crocodiles share a common ancestor. Mm-hmm. And they, all birds and all crocodilians, are the only living members, albeit quite a lot of living members, of a group of animals called the Archosaurians, which also includes all extinct dinosaurs. <gasps> So what I'm hearing is that Jurassic Park should have had one of these helium chambers. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's not what the that's not what the authors say. Okay. The authors say this raises the possibility that resonant frequencies might have played a role in dinosaur vocalizations. Uh. So it could have been an important indicator of science. Which is also pretty cool. But like you, it immediately made me wonder how effectively you could give a T-Rex helium. I mean, I think the only thing stopping this are the fact they're extinct, the size of the chamber you'd need. Uh, actually, no, those are quite big problems. Yeah, yeah. they're, quite, no, they're yeah. Quite, yeah, quite big issues. I love this. Yeah. 
It's cool, isn't it? But you know how, like, last show I was saying my, my isolation recommendation was walking with dinosaurs? Yeah. How much better would that show be if they were all really squeaky? On helium with dinosaurs! It'd be like <laughs> mixing the Minions movie with walking with dinosaurs. <laughs> That sounds like possibly the greatest creation that's never been made. <laughs> I mean, if the science doesn't work out for us, then I'm sure we're naturally skilled in graphic design too. So let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go for it. Isolation recommendations. So the countrywide lockdown in England has just finished, but we are still in varying levels of lockdown, which means that isolation recommendations are still completely valid. Therefore... What is your isolation recommendation this week? Well, I'm going to go very close to home with this. Mm-hmm. So, Is it try and find the UL's is it? Darwin <laughs> yeah. notebooks? Yeah, everyone, get on the internet, do your research, look on the black market, see if you can find Darwin's notebooks. <laughs> and when you find them, the UL can't be trusted. So I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you to send them to another museum in Cambridge... Which yeah. also holds Darwin specimens, uh-huh. the Museum of Zoology. I see what you did Which there. is my isolation recommendation. Disclaimer alert week. if you do just happen to find the notebooks of Darwin, please tell the police and also the UL, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Museum of Zoology are continuing their online outreach while they're closed. I think actually, probably they're reopening again very soon. Uh, yeah, because yeah. We're, we're in tier two in Cambridgeshire. I think they've been doing a lot of puns because they have a, a giant whale skeleton. And they've been doing a lot of whale comeback. Uh, yeah. So I, I believe they are reopened yeah. to check that one out. But in the meantime, also check out their blog, which is museumofzoologyblog.com, where they're currently running 12 days of winter wildlife. Mm. Um, and this is full of all sorts of fun facts, activities for kids, videos, photos, recordings, and a 12 Days of Critters song, um, which has been especially adapted by one of the PhD students, Kate Howlett, in the department. And it's just all round, you know, sort of wholesome, fun, wildlife facts. It's lovely. Yeah. It's so good. And the people behind it are, you know, like Kate and Sarah Steele, Ros Wade, they're just all really good at what they do. They're really good at making outreach accessible whilst also being really fun and yeah, yeah wholesome and really informative and really yeah exactly and just really good you're learning without realizing you're learning and that's the best kind of learning exactly basically yeah, yeah i love this it is it's it's really nice and although like it's kind of got kids in mind i guess so that kids find it accessible it's definitely also interesting for adults i definitely say that even if people already know quite a bit about wildlife yeah they'll find out fun new facts yeah as well. and i know they're going to do they're going to do some features on on different groups of animals some top tips for going and looking for wildlife in the winter mm. which you know at, the, at this time of year there's a bit less encouragement to get outside sometimes it's you know it can be a bit gray and cold but actually there's loads of cool wildlife out there and especially um, this year right when we can't really go into places in the same ways we used to get out there yeah go outside yeah we, we can't we can't go and you know have have christmas meals with friends so let's go go for christmas walks with friends instead exactly. and play outside ah yeah that's a good I, I like that isolation recommendation we should definitely give them publicity 100 percent. so that's museumofzoologyblog.com yeah so what's your recommendation well i know that i usually recommend twitter or instagram accounts or tv programs but this week i'm going rogue oh i'm going to recommend a book 
I'm ashamed to say that I so rarely get the time these days to read a whole book, but I'm about, I'm probably more than three quarters of the way through this one and I'm sticking with it because it's particularly good. So it's The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy, What Animals on Earth Reveal About Aliens by Dr. Eric Kirschenbaum. Eric's actually a member of the zoology department that we both work at and he's a fellow of my Cambridge College at Girton. So I've known that this book was coming out for a little while now and it's such an outside-the-box concept that I've been genuinely looking forward to it. And actually, it's even better than I thought it was going to be or I'd hoped it was going to be. So from hearing the title, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy, you might be thinking, like, what I mean, what could a zoologist tell us about aliens? But Eric's decades of research are focused on the evolution of animal acoustic communications. And this is in animals as diverse as hyraxes, dolphins, wolves. And in this book, he shows that by looking at the underlying principles of biology, so things like Darwinian evolution, as well as physics, and how these have shaped animals on Earth, we can go a long way to hypothesising what kinds of adaptations would be possible or at least probable on other planets. Mm. So would aliens also use resonant frequencies? There's a whole... You know, I'm not going to give anything away, but there is a whole section on communication. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, definitely, that's a good question to ask, but I'm going to do that whole like thing of, oh, you'll have to read it to find out. It's a really fun book. So it basically uses these like serious scientific principles, but then explains them in a really relatable way. After we were just chatting about uh, Museum of Zoology doing, doing a similar kind of thing. But I feel like that's the kind of the best kind of science. It's like yeah. you're, you're learning, but you don't feel like you're being sat down in, in a classroom. Yeah. So it includes like crazy examples of how, you know, these principles like, like evolution and physical principles, how they play out on Earth. So instead of the book getting bogged down by dry theory, its tone is kind of playful and inquisitive. He discusses how what we see on Earth might tell us about aliens, about like how aliens might communicate, move, interact with each other, how clever they might be. Mm. And for fans of sci-fi, he often compares these potential evolutionary aliens with what's been depicted in films and novels. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like this. So so he'll kind of reference, like, the, I mean, there's so many sci-fi movies, you know, everything from, like, Arrival, which is a, you know, I don't know how long ago that was, five years ago film yeah. or whatever, to, like, classic sci-fi. Because often in sci-fi things are kind of humanoid or maybe they've got like super intelligence or they're just like a big cloud of gas or whatever yeah. and it kind of goes through you know how realistic each of those kind of features might be so it's really good it's, it's one for the sci-fi fans as well but basically amongst all this fun he gets really into the crux of how evolution has shaped the creatures that we see around us and i think that it'd be like it's actually really accessible way for zoology undergrads to like absorb these big topics yeah i've kind of felt like i was it was reminding me of things which i'd learned a long time ago yeah but in like a fun rather than a dry way are you are you now recommending it to all of your students as well so now i mean at the moment i'm teaching um third years but i actually did recommend it today to to one group i can't remember what we were talking about but there was something we're talking about evolution basically and i was like you know what is a a sort of slightly more palatable way to learn about this or at least explore it is this book The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy so yeah no I think actually yeah. it'd be a really good read for people before they come to uni to do zoology yeah. to get like a primer it'd be really good for people doing a course on this kind of stuff and yeah. also just people interested in it yeah. I feel like you don't 
you don't need to be a scientist. You just need to be like interested yeah. to understand it. It's that kind of level. Very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. So I don't want to give away too much about the book, seeing as I'm encouraging you to read it. But I just wanted to read you a bit that I thought you'd enjoy. So this is in the chapter about communications. Yeah. See, I, you know, I didn't even know what you were choosing this week. Anyway, this is about communications and it's a quote from the book. So why is there no chemical language in the sense of a true language? Why can you not write a poem in smells? And is this stunning lack of sophisticated chemical communication merely a fluke of Earth's environmental and development history? Or can we expect that every planet we visit will be similarly devoid of flatulent Shakespeare's? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to stop there. So to find out whether flatulent Shakespearean aliens could exist, you'll have to read the book. Good spoiler. I know. <laughs> I really enjoyed that section. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm actually mainly listening to this as an audiobook when I'm doing some quite monotonous lab work. And it's a good, it's a good background sort of spl- track. Spluttering to yourself. Yeah, I'm just often. like having a little giggle to myself with flatulent Shakespearean aliens and the like. Yeah. Anyway, that's all we've got time for today, folks. But... We have exciting news. Oh, drum roll, please. Drum roll, please. It's really not that exciting. But we do now have an email account for the show, which sounds, I mean, we sound about 102 getting excited about the presence of an email account. (laughs) Everyone else is like getting TikTok and we're like, hey, kids, we have a Gmail. But we do, and we would love to hear from you. This is this is because she got really excited because we got our first listener submission of a paper. No, no, we got a listener submission from Matt in series one. Oh, that is true. It's okay. just that this is someone who I didn't realise was secretly listening to us. So <laughs> we now have secretly. If there's one, there could be thousands. Who knows? Or four. Or maybe even four. But yes. We do have an email account. It is lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. That's lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. So just say hi. Just send us an email. Send us tips for funny science you've come across or just tell us what you want to hear on the podcast. Wouldn't Is- fussy? Isolation recommendations? Isolation recommendations. Yes, Yeah, exactly. we'll take them for us as well as for the, for the listeners. Exactly, yeah. You can spread the love to us and to your fellow listeners. Just just drop in and, and tell us what you think of the podcast. Just mm. be kind of nice, I guess. That would be... Yeah. <laughs> Please don't send us abuse. <laughs> 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 no nudes. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no nudes, please. This is a, this is a clean podcast. We're going out on Camera Fam. This is a it's a family show. It's a family show. No swearing here. <laughs> but yes, we'd love to hear from you. Lockdown Science Podcast at gmail dot com. Mm. Please, I set it up. Don't make this in vain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but of course, it's not just email that you can use to get in touch with us. There's still the Old old form, I guess. Is this old form? Are we going? Are we, is this like Back to the Future? I'm not sure what Twitter account says. <laughs> um, but you can still find us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen, and I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen. And yeah, you can just. Uh, I mean, if you really hate email for some reason, you can yeah. also follow us on there and yeah. uh, say something to us. Yeah, and don't forget to tune in in two weeks' time for the next episode of Lockdown Science on Cam FM. We'll see you there.